What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 37. We have Gladiator. And we did a quite a long episode last time with David Fincher, which was about three and a half hours almost. So we're going to tone it down and just do one movie because Gladiator is an epic enough movie to talk about in just one episode. It deserves its own episode. It's easily the best ancient civilization film ever made, possibly the most accurate depiction of the Roman Empire to come out of Hollywood. Obviously, tons of inaccuracies, but personally, also one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Yeah, this brought back the period epic, which was a very popular kind of film in the 50s and 60s with like Spartacus, Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur. So it was a very big genre back then, kind of like Cowboys in the 70s and 60s. And it brought it back in... I don't think any film since Gladiator has matched, obviously, the quality and the epicness of, of this movie. You had, like, Alexander the Great and Clash of the Titans and a bunch of others. And Troy. Troy. They and, all seem to try to grasp what Gladiator yeah. accomplished but never really could. And Ridley Scott even tried to duplicate it, like, with Kingdom of Heaven and Robin Hood. He made it, like, Gladiator-esque. But there's something special about this movie that sets it apart from all others, even the ones in, in the same genre where it's just a timeless film. And I think it's a perfect movie. Yeah, it's a, it's the ultimate story of vengeance. It tells the story of a very successful and honorable man whose life is completely destroyed in his path of revenge. And it cleaned up at the Oscars. It got nominated for 12, won five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Russell Crowe, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, and Best Visual Effects. And again, it's probably responsible for that resurgence of like these ancient culture warfare movie war movies um, there must have been like three decades, maybe longer, of not really anything big coming out like that since like those old days in the 70s. And so this really revitalized that genre. Yeah. And the craziest thing about this movie, for, because of its success and because of how good it is and the accolades it won, was the fact that they went into production on this film with hardly anything written at all, story-wise. They only had about 30 to 32 pages written before they built a production and started shooting. Which is pretty crazy. I mean, you might be able to pull it off with an independent feature, but this movie had a $150 million budget. So it's a crazy thing that happened. And they were literally writing the script as they filmed. And they filmed in chronological order. So as they were filming, they were like, you know what? It would be cool for the next scene if we did this. And then this that we did, the the thing we filmed yesterday, we can um, go back to it later on in the film. So they were writing as they went along. It's incredible that they accomplished this with, with such, with such little planning. And then like the elaborateness, I'm, I'm sure they planned out the major scenes and major sequences, mm-hmm. but in terms of it's a two hour and a half hour movie, they had to fill that screen time up and yeah, yeah. They did a phenomenal job. And you're right. They, they, all they did was plan out the big set pieces cause they have to build the sets and do the costumes. So they were like, okay, Ridley Scott was like, okay, we have a big battle in the beginning. We have to build the Coliseum, and then we have to build the Roman sets, like the Senate area and the Pantheon and stuff. So otherwise, I don't know what we're going to do, but build those sets for me, and then we'll start shooting. <laughs> but only, uh, I can't think of any other filmmaker who can pull it off other than Ridley Scott, because there are so many other filmmakers that are great on his level, but Ridley is a, a unique director where no matter what movie he makes, he's under budget and under and ahead of schedule. So every film he's ever made, he's never gone over budget. He always he's always gone under budget, and he's always finished faster than they intended. So studios love him because he cranks things out quickly, and he keeps them from spending more money than they want to. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 for 15% off your order, and stay tuned for our movie poster giveaways, which we do a couple times a month. This episode is also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. If you like our podcast and our content and want to help support us, the best thing you can do is share our podcast, either the YouTube version or audio versions on Spotify 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. Or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Share us with your movie friends, your family members, your, your buddies. Let them know there's an awesome movie show for them to check out. Leaving those five-star reviews is incredibly helpful for us, especially the written ones. It helps us get seen by a lot of new people on those podcast apps, specifically Apple Podcasts. We also have a Patreon right now where you can support us monthly and members get special perks like a personalized video sent out to them, sneak peeks at upcoming episodes, as well as the top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast immortalized forever on our show. And as always, spoilers are abound. Gladiator came out on May 5th in 2000. It was directed by Ridley Scott, written by Dave Franzoni. It stars Russell Crowe, Joaquin Phoenix, Connie Nielsen, Oliver Reed, Derek Jacoby, and Jimon Hunsu. The film grossed $465 million worldwide on a budget of $103 million. A retired Roman general is forced into slavery by the dishonorable emperor that slaughtered his family. He demands revenge for his family. And this film was obviously a big star-making role for Russell Crowe. After he made this, he blew up and became a sensation. And this film took over popular culture for that year. I think it was, what, 2000, 2001, 99. People were talking about this for a long time. Yeah, and it made way more international than it did domestic. It made almost $300 million international. So it hit a lot of different cultures, mainstream media, tons of audiences. And again, launched Russell Crowe to superstardom coming from Australia over there down under might. And um, this is, again, very exciting film to come out. We haven't seen anything like this in decades. And the scope of Gladiator is immense. And the budget shows in it. This takes place in Rome in 180 AD at the peak of the Roman Empire at the end, the very end of the Golden Age. And Rome at the time ruled the lives of a quarter of the population on the planet Earth. So it's insane to think about the vastness of an empire like that and how many people they controlled in their lives. Yeah, their land stretched into three continents. And this was a time in which the Roman Empire had gone from a republic, uh, a democracy where the Senate had the power and people had power. It was uh, taken away by the Caesars who began ruling as emperors, and they took the power away from the Senate. There was still a Senate, but the Senate was more of uh, uh, people that helped the emperor out rather than having any power. So as the emperors took control of Rome, the people lost any kind of power they had. And this was one of the things that led to the downfall of Rome. And this film is full of many powerful themes, most importantly talking about Caesars and emperors as power and the, the lust for power and the scope of power as well as betrayal, obviously vengeance or revenge. And faith, faith plays a prominent factor in this film and, and takes Maximus on his journey throughout his, his path of vengeance. Faith is very, very important to him. Yeah, and I think there are people that kind of critique the, the wheat shots and the Elysium shots and they think it's a little cheesy, but... I think it's fantastic, and I think it's one of the, it's the heart of the movie. And also, you have to factor in that this film was told in the perspective of person of a person who lived in that era, and back then, this is the kind of thing they believed, like science. They believed in Elysium. They believed in an afterlife where you had your family still. You had a, you he, you had your land, and you had a new home in the, in the afterlife. And so, you have to you were following the story in the perspective of that character. So, it totally makes sense to have that in the film. Yeah, and since we're talking about it real quick, that opening of the movie is the shot of Maximus's hand gliding along the wheat, and then it cuts to him on the battlefield. And that wheat, for me, represents um, resurrection or rebirth, which he thinks he'll do, and once he's once he's passed, to be reunited with his family. And um, wheat represents fertility and harvest, and 
signifies the circle of life, whether it be grain, human life, animal life, death and rebirth. So it's a really important symbol in religion, specifically uh, Christianity. Um, and then so it, throughout the film, these visions of him in the wheat field are, are scattered throughout the story and represent his, his inevitable journey to the afterlife. Yeah, I think it also repre- represents home to him because his home is synonymous with the wheat fields. And so that's why he visually experiences wheat when he is hallucinating before his death. And that's why it's the opening symbol of the film because it's the driving force of Maximus is to return home. And once that's taken away from him, uh, all hell breaks loose, basically. Yeah. All hell breaks loose. And Ridley Scott, he's one of the best directors to ever do it. I need, I think for a lot of people, he kind of hovers under the radar. They know he like made Alien and maybe American Gangster. Yeah, mainstream audiences still don't um, really know. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, the average person, yeah. maybe don't they don't even know Ridley Scott's name or maybe they recognize it, but they don't understand the impact he's had on film in general, let alone the sci-fi genre. But he's also tapped into another, a bunch of other genres. And again, he he's obsessed with not just sci-fi, but these ancient culture films too. But he's one of the best to ever do it, ever step behind the camera. He's had a long and illustrious career. And I, I get excited every time he comes out with a new movie. And Gladiator, again, one of my top 10 favorite movies. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a guy who's made a handful of great films. Not just a good movie, but great films that will stand the test of time. And this is one of them. And this could be my favorite Ridley Scott movie. And it's pretty ironic because he initially didn't want to make the film, but the producers spoke with him a little bit, and they showed him this painting, the, a 19th century painting of a gladiator scene. And upon seeing this uh, painting, he, he was sold on the idea of the movie because he was still kind of unaware of gladiators. He had seen gladiator films before, but he didn't think it would work contemporary-wise to make nowadays. But once he saw that painting, he was, he was locked in and ready to go. Yeah, so Ridley's a master, and this is probably his masterpiece if he has one. This may be Alien, but um, also one of the, the greatest parts of this film and probably the heart and soul of the movie besides Maximus's character is probably Hans Zimmer's score, which is maybe my most listened-to movie score of all time. I listen to it all the time. Um, he I work out to it all the time. Yeah, he was nominated for an Oscar to this. Yeah, if you're working out and you need to get pumped up, listen to this album like The Battle and Barbarian, Barbarian Horde. Oh, oh yeah. man, amps me up big time. And they actually just released a... 20th anniversary of the album so they added a bunch of tracks and some of those tracks have actually dialogue from some scenes i, I those put me up to the dialogue scenes in the in the album those get me going and um one of hans's strengths as a composer and he's he's probably my favorite film composer of all time i mean i think john williams is the best but hans is my favorite is he has this amazing ability to to capture the sounds and identities of other cultures like if a film takes place like for last samurai those japanese tones or mm-hmm. maybe kung fu panda um, he has an ability to to make you feel like you're in those cultures just musically, and he connects so well with characters and themes. And he's he's a master. And I mean, even Sherlock Holmes, it sounds it has all those Anglo-Saxon and, and British musical melodies. Yeah, and um, what do you call um, the people who wander like nomadic gypsies? And he used a lot of gypsy instruments and sounds to create those scores. And that's actually how he created this score. Was what Hans Zimmer does when it's a, a film that takes place in a different culture or a period. He tries to fact. He tries to put in as many instruments that are accurate to that culture and period as possible, and so and this is an example of him using several various instruments from these foreign cultures, and the most prominently was the duduk, which is a Middle Eastern clarinet, a wind instrument, and he has it used a lot throughout the film, and that adds to the to the tone and the context and the identity of the score, and that's why I think. 
when you hear the music and you hear Hans Zimmer's themes, it really feels like it's taking you and transporting you to another world. Yeah, and just to stay on the Middle Eastern um, culture, ancient Rome, they, they got very accurate into what it would have probably been like and what it actually was because Rome, again, was this epicenter of cultures. And the Roman Empire at the time, at Marcus Aurelius's end to communists' reign, factually, they had every territory that touched the Mediterranean Sea. And plus, they stretched all the way up to England and everything, too. So they had a bunch of different cultures blended in. And at that time... It would have been very similar to similar to basically what the JFK International Airport is in terms of this eclectic mix of every culture on the planet Earth. And it would have had a very Middle Eastern culture cultural vibe to it, too. So they captured, like, you would think, oh, it's ancient Rome, so it's a bunch of eat, people eating pasta and meatballs and stuff like that. <laughs> Absolutely not. So it's a blended— Lots it, of deserts. It looks, yeah, deserts, but it also looks very Middle Eastern. It looks like maybe Turkey or— or somewhere in Iran or something like that. Yeah, and in terms of uh, the depiction of Rome, the city itself in this film, it's very accurate. And it's also surprising if you are unaware of uh, Roman history. When you see this film and they show the shots of Rome, there's hundreds upon hundreds of giant buildings made of stone and marble and and granite. And uh, we're used to Rome nowadays where there's just several, a handful of monuments that are still uh, there. But back then... There were over, what, there were 2 million people that lived in Rome mm-hmm. at, at this time? Something, something like that. Yeah, around 2 million people lived in Rome, which is probably the same size as a major city nowadays. And they were packed into the city with lots of large buildings. But what happened was after the, the fall of Rome and the dissolution of the environments, um, most of the city was deconstructed. And the raw materials from the buildings were actually stolen and taken by other countries and cultures and communities to use to build other structures. So a lot of the architecture of Rome was taken away from the city. Yeah, Rome was a very beautiful city. It's kind of similar to Egypt with the pyramids, how obviously we all know that it wasn't kind of step-like with blocks. There was actually a sleek and clean smoothness to the pyramids. Of, and they were white. A beautiful stone that was eventually removed after the fall of Egypt, and they used it to rebuild the city. And so, again, I highly suggest like doing some research on looking. like There's a great composites and CGI mappings of what ancient rome looked like in its peak and it's breathtaking if you've ever been there i've been to rome and it's it's absolutely incredible even to see just the the skeletons of these monuments and and the and the bones of these buildings and structures but it, you can really feel the atmosphere and like when you stand outside the coliseum it's absolutely incredible and italy is a must place to, a must be place for everyone who travels and it's a pretty amazing thing that one uh one community stretched so far across the world stayed together for so long. I, I think it was inevitable that uh, a country that big would eventually fall. I think it's impossible for it to to not um, fall into disillusion because there were so many cultures, so many languages. Um, I think it was just too big to handle. Yeah, and at that point, and kind of at the beginning of the film, is basically a point where Rome's kind of hit its peak, and it, basically all of its battles and all its wars are it's protecting its territory and protecting its borders. So that's basically, they've stretched as far as they really can go at that point. And one of the most fascinating things I think about ancient Rome and that empire is even though it was in ancient times and they blended in all these different cultures and countries, they still had one system of monetary money, which is, I think, incredible to have just one source of, of one currency for the entire empire, which is incredible. Yeah, the Romans were, were brilliant. And a lot of what we have now in modern cultures was is thanks to the Romans and the Greeks. So the, the Greeks, Greeks laid yeah. the foundations for what Rome would be to become, and yeah. so they kind of those Rome two built the, off of Greece. Yeah. So those yeah. are two of the biggest influences in in current modern society is Greece and Rome. Yeah. And also speaking about the culture back then is 
the idea of gladiators, they weren't just slaves. I think before I saw this film, I thought gladiators were always just slaves. Yeah, me too. But gladiators could have been, they could have been slaves. They could have been soldiers who were entering the games to get paid. Maybe they they had a slow year and they needed to earn some money. Even powerful figures, senators, even some emperors, they fought in the games as well to show their prowess and to to prove their strength in fighting skills. And um, it became not just slavery, but a business for someone to earn money as well. Yeah. Um, how accurate are the gladiator fights? They're pretty close, uh, obviously dra- dramatized, but to the extent of what gladiators really were, again, what you were just talking about, gladi- gladiators were really looked more on as athletes of the time in ancient Rome and other than what the movie would depict where they're just going out to slaughter every time. Many of them survived years of fighting in the arena and retired free men eventually. And gladiator fights were actually very similar to maybe a boxing match or more closely to like a UFC fighting match where you have two men who are highly trained, um, well-fed, and in peak physical condition condition, and usually consisted on of one-on-one fights. And they even had a referee with each of these fighters. So maybe during the gladiator bouts, there'd be six different fights happening in the Coliseum at once, and each one had a referee, and they made sure the fights were fair. And you didn't die every time you fought. I mean, every time two people fought, there wasn't always a death. Usually it would end if there was a severe, serious injury, like maybe someone got stabbed and they could survive, or obviously the crowd or, or the Caesar could su- suggest that that person must die if they lose the fight. But a lot and of the Caesar would decide death or life, if uh, depending on how the other gladiator fought. If they fought badly... And the Caesar didn't like it. They would they would generally go to kill him. Yeah, but if it was a great fight and there's just one bad injury and they both survived, then that's that's the way it was. And the Colosseum was really fascinating the way it worked because it was mostly just used for executions. The Colosseum, mm-hmm. and basically pretty much during the peak of whatever emperor had the Colosseum operating as this way. Obviously, not all emperors or all Caesars used the Colosseum like this, but. Obviously, Commodus did. He had 150 days of games. Yeah, and that's yeah. He actually was like that back then. That's a real accurate portrayal. Yeah, but the 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 majority of use of the Colosseum was daily execution. So people who were on trial and were were uh, guilty and charged and sentenced to death, they would be executed in the Colosseum. And most of the time, most people who died in the Colosseum were killed by wild animals. They were killed by tigers, lions, bears. They would have a guy who was a robber found guilty. He'd have to go up one on one against a bear, or they'd have a group of guilty people versus a group of freaking tigers. And so more people died from wild beasts in the Coliseum than gladiator battles. And usually these executions took place all morning and all through the middle day. And then the end of the day were the gladiator fights. And everyone, this is when they came to watch these gladiator fights every day. And that was the main attraction. So many people went to see it that if you were in the city during the time in, in the morning, you could hear the crowd chanting and cheering from across the city, echoing across Rome. And everyone had pretty much assigned seating based on your social class of where you were supposed to sit in the Coliseum. So you basically you would go to work in the morning, then you'd do whatever you had to do, and then you'd all meet up for the gladiator games at some <laughs> point, and you'd go check it out, then you'd go home. So this was just a daily part of life in ancient Rome during specific emperor's reign. Yeah, and gladiators were the celebrities of their day. They were sex symbols for women, and they were superheroes for kids. Kids would build little toys of famous gladiators. They would murals and paintings and be made based on gladiators and they pretty much were like celebrity actors of their day and uh the public loved them and they had all kinds of different gladiator fights and events too besides executions they also had you know the hand-to-hand sword combat wherever they each 
Gladiator would have a different uh, strength or weakness in the arena, and, they, and their weapons would be given based on that. They also would could even flood the Colosseum and have armada battles, which was absolutely insane. That's crazy. So they could flood it, and then a few days later, they just deflood it and just have normal fights. It's an amazing culture. It's fascinating. And Maximus was actually, there was a gladiator called Maximus. Obviously, Maximus and Gladiator is a fictional character, but there was mm. one called Gla- called Maximus. He was like, he's like top 10 gladiator of all time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and there's like a list. And uh, he wasn't the most winning champion, but I think he survived and made it through his life um, and re- retired uh, alive. And yeah, yeah. And Commodus was really Marcus Aurelius's son, and Lucilla was really his sister. And Lucilla, in real life, really did try to assassinate Commodus, and he survived the attack and ended up uh, killing her. Yeah, but we'll get into more of the inaccuracies and factual information pertaining to the story and characters as we talk about each of the events and each plot point. But all in all, I think they were very accurate. For for a narrative uh, fiction movie, they did a great job. How about we talk about Maximus, who's... One of my favorite characters ever. Although fictional, serves as the surrogate for our audience in this wonderful world of ancient Rome. We get a glimpse of the cities, the Senate, the politics, the conquests, and of course the Colosseum. Um, Maximus is a high-ranking Roman general in command of multiple Roman legions who served under the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius in the 12-year campaign against the barbarians in Germania. He's, for me, one of the most iconic and memorable characters I've ever seen in film. He's probably my my favorite like hero or action hero I've ever seen. Uh, he's a very honorable, noble man. He's a natural leader, gifted soldier. He's highly disciplined. He speaks articulately, and he's adored by his men. Yeah, Maximus is one of the greatest depictions of the archetype of the hero figure. He's virtuous, honorable. He's humble. He's reserved. He's strong. He's courageous. And most importantly, he rejects power and money in favor of family and peace. And I think that's what sets him apart from everyone else in this film is that he has the opportunity to seize power and he has the opportunity to gain control of the city. He has an army on his back, but he decides to reject that. And I think that's what makes him such an incredible figure and so inspiring. And I think that's why others look up to him and follow him without question. Yeah, and that's the reason why Caesar offers him to become predecessor and protector of Rome is because Maximus is of such strong moral character, one of the few people probably in the entire empire who would not let Rome go to his head or corrupt him and the power of it corrupt him. And of course, he's a flawed man. He's a killer. He's he's probably killed who knows how many people. So he's not a perfect man, but he's a very honorable man. And he's at 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 heart just a great leader. He's a father. He's a husband. And to go back to the very beginning of the film and the, the visions of the wheat. He's a farmer. He wants to go and harvest his crops. That's what he wants to do after this first battle. He's going to retire and go home and live on his farm. And then the antagonist of the film is Commodus, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who's amazing in this role. Um, Commodus, again, was a real emperor, the son of Marcus Aurelius, nicknamed the Mad Emperor, the Mad King, who did fancy himself a gladiator at times, but there's no historical information of killing his father. Actually, he was a co-ruler um, of Rome with his father, and his father died of natural causes. And his, and uh, he was co-emperor at age 15 and became full-time emperor by himself at age 19. So Commodus was a real person. Um, and like you talked about earlier, he did live a life full of conspiracies and there were assassination attempts and betrayals. And he did create this godlike image for himself in Rome, and he created himself as a dictator to rule over Rome, and very much very similar to the film. He even named renamed Rome the 
Um, I can't remember what it is in Latin, but it's uh, the colony of Commodus. Yeah, I think he's the one who built that giant gold statue too of himself, right? Mm. I think that was Commodus. Yeah, in, in the film, he holds 150 ga- days of games, but in actual, what really happened was he held 10 years worth of games. The games went on for years, and it was becoming so bad that his own um, people ended up uh, getting him assassinated, and a gladiator ended up killing him, was a, was the assassin. Yeah, it was his trainer slash gladiator, too, who killed yeah. him. And um, in Commodus, you can tell he's just kind of this, like, spoiled brat prince sort of person who, you know, you picture, like, modern-day just kid with using daddy's money to spend on Porsches. And Commodus is a man of, of weak moral character and poor ethics and... He's obviously being groomed to be emperor, but when he doesn't get what he wants, he breaks and mentally just loses it and kind of just is a very selfish character who wants to only please himself. I don't, I wouldn't say that he has been groomed to be emperor. I think that he's been living his entire life preparing himself to be emperor and expecting it to happen. And so when uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, rejects him, it destroys him and leads to his eventual he he unhinges and also communist is obsessed with being loved i think that's his biggest character flaw is the obsession with attention and the obsession with being loved and the reason for this is because he spent his enti- his entire life trying to win his father's love and his father's approval but marcus aurelius never gave him approval and never truly loved him and so i think that bre- bred a, a intense amount of insecurity and resentment and that helped shape him into the villain he became yeah i think that also forms is a great point it forms a lot of his actions in terms of he doesn't want to follow through with his father's vision of rome and returning the power to the people and bringing democracy about about and, and bringing a republic about he he ends up wanting to destroy rome and destroy the only thing that his father loved and also destroy Maximus, who his father loved too. So he he kind of uses the slight as of not being chosen to heart even more because I don't think maybe Matt, uh, Commodus would have done what he did in terms of the patricide, which we'll talk about soon, if um, Marcus Aurelius chose someone from the Senate, like Gracchus. I think that it was the ultimate slight to Commodus to choose Maximus over anyone else to become emperor because them two uh Commodus calls Maximus his brother and they probably they've known each other since children and Maximus has always gotten what Commodus has always wanted he's always wanted the love and affection from his father and the respect from his father Maximus has reached Marcus Aurelius expectations and maybe even exceeded them he kind of seems like the the son that Marcus Aurelius never had so in Maximus also has that past relationship with his sister so I think those things in combination with Maximus being chosen instead of someone from the Senate is what makes Commodus break mentally. Yeah, exactly. That's 100% true because he already resented Maximus so much because the two people that Commodus loved more than anything didn't love him back and loved Maximus instead of him. When Marcus Aurelius denies the throne to him, he even asks, oh, which old senator is it going to be? And then when he says Maximus, then he reacts away. So I think you're definitely right about that. And then Joaquin's just amazing in this movie. I think this was his major breakout in film. He got an Oscar nomination. And I'm sure written on the page, it wasn't quite as interesting as he made it made it on screen. I think he adds so much to every character he plays that I can't imagine anyone else doing more than he did. 
No, he's phenomenal, and you can tell it explain it. It shows his career path and how he chooses these eclectic characters, and he's kind of off the beaten path. He even takes this, like you just said, straightforward person character on script and turns it into something else and something so totally memorable and maybe even a better performance than Russell Crowe, who's so good in this movie. And he just lights up every scene he's in. And even though there are some scenes that are, are long and dialogue heavy, as long as Joaquin's there, you can't not look away. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And then Marcus Aurelius is Caesar at the time, the emperor. He's a great general. He's highly intelligent. He's a philosopher too. His writing is still popular today. Um, we have the Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, which you can still talk about, which you can still get and read anytime. Uh, I've dabbled through it a little bit. Yeah, the stuff he does in a day is a cool thing. Yeah. Um, he's a, he's also, you can tell, a tired man who's been clearly weathered from decades of war. Again, his end, the end of his last decade, the end of his reign has been not new wars, but protecting his barriers that he's helped forge. And I think the film, they, they he says that he created the vast empire, which isn't factually correct. He I think he only expanded it a little bit. So mm-hmm. when he says that for the last 25 years, that map, this is what I built, that's not factually true. But obviously, Hollywood script, going to make it seem like he did. Yeah. So that most of that was already built before him, but he did help expand it and protect it a little more. And again, he's a very noble character and, and seems like a, a very smart, intelligent guy. And Towards the end of his life, he's realized what he wants to happen to Rome and bring the power back to the people. But ironically, in real life, in history, Marcus Aurelius was the Caesar and emperor who brought back the the previous change. He brought back the rule where um, Caesar passed on by male heirs. So previously, had that rule had been struck away so that it doesn't continue a line of just family and blood. So mm. he actually brought that rule back so that his son Commodus could become emperor. And then we have Commodus' sister, Lucilla, who's the firstborn of Marcus Aurelius, the older sister of Commodus. And she definitely would have been Caesar had she not been born a woman, which Commodus tells her to her face, which is kind of sucks the way it was in terms of a male hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And then Juba is Maximus's friend and fellow gladiator. They have this connection, Juba and Maximus, which is mostly rooted in faith, which Juba helps bring to Maximus on his path of vengeance. And then Proximo is... Maximus's owner and, and manager slash gladiator trainer. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over technology developments to provide you with the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped has been super generous. They sent us their performance packages, which I'm telling you would be an amazing gift for the holiday season for any of the men, brothers, fathers, uncles, cousins, friends in your life. I'm telling you, this is stuff that guys actually want to receive. So I highly recommend checking it out. Use Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. They also just recently sent us some new stuff. They sent us this awesome cologne. Thank you so much, Kyle, from Manscaped for sending us the new cologne. It smells great. It's actually it's actually really nice. I'm usually not a cologne guy, but I'm telling you, it smells really good. Oh, yeah. Ladies are going to be all over you now. <laughs> Again, holiday season, this is the stuff that guys want. I'm telling you, any guy would freak out if they got something from manscaped.com. Use the coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping off your order from manscaped.com today. The opening of this film, again, starts with the shot of the wheat, and then I think there's a bird, which is probably a sparrow, a, a sparrow I think, mm-hmm. that symbolizes innocence. And then we have this great cut directly to this war experience general, this dark shot, and it's of maximus on the battlefield and again they're protecting the borders of rome against this barbarian horde 
these barbarians in Germania. And these are the barbarians are pretty much rebels who didn't want to see their their countries in their lands taken over, so they rebelled against the Roman forces and attacked them in any any situation they could. Yeah, and you kind of can't help but feel bad for these guys in these countries because yeah. again, this was a back a long time ago. This doesn't happen anymore, thank God, where countries and cultures were just hell bent on conquering each other and getting as much land and resources as possible mm-hmm. because that's all that mattered. So you feel bad for them at the same time. You know, you're watching the Roman Empire who are depicted as the heroes in this film. So you're rooting for Maximus the whole time, obviously. And there's this great line that Quintus says, who's, um, I, I don't know, I think he's a lieutenant colonel. Yeah, something like that. And he tells Maximus, people should know when they're conquered. Yeah. Which is just like showing that who knows how many civilizations and countries and, and communities the Roman Empire has taken over by now. Yeah, fortunately, this is not happening anymore. Mm. And this is a great scene because you get to see the effectiveness of what people and, and historians call the Roman war machine at the time and the advance and sophistication in their weaponry and the fighting tactics and how outmanned and outnumbered and, and outmatched technolo- technology-wise every other culture was and every other army was against the Roman, Emperor and the Roman Empire. That's how they were able to spread so quickly. And then this this opening battle also shows a lot of the character of Maximus before the battle even takes place where they don't even... really Scott doesn't have any dialogue happen. What happens is it's all action where we sh- we see how loyal these men are to Maximus. He When he walks past soldiers, they get down on their knees and they, they bow their head to him. Uh, they they these these men are fiercely loyal to him and would die for him and you can see the the great amount of respect that this guy has earned and he's not like he's not a a, a general or a ruler who has never been on the battlefield he's he, never even he's not even roman yeah he's, yeah he's not even roman he he's a soldier he's one of them and he's clearly you can tell he's earned his place among them and you can see his natural instincts as a leader and we even I kind of have, like, if Maximus told me to do something, I would do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, again, another great example of that is during this battle is this this dog who's by Maximus' side, clearly his dog. And, again, it shows the loyalty and, and respect that the dog has for Maximus, which really can only come from treating a dog so well or, or your soldiers so well and with so much respect and, and honoring your, your, your soldiers and your dog, too. Is And so just the, the dog is another example of how loyal people are to Maximus. Yeah. And this battle is just fantastically epic, and it's a great way to open the film. And I love the set piece because it's actually a real forest that they destroyed. And what happened was the the Royal Forestry Commission of that country, they were planning to destroy this forest for conservation reasons. And so it was already going to be burnt down. And Ridley Scott found out about this and, told, and got in contact with them and was like, hey, can I film my movie here and we can just burn it down for you? <laughs> <laughs> so that's why that, that they were able to burn down all these trees without like harming the environment because it was already going to be, it was being commissioned to be destroyed already. And it's a very interesting battle. And I love the way Ridley shot this because it's kind of disorienting. It's a lot of quick cuts, blurred images, flashy flashes, and it seems kind of hard to follow. And I think Scott is trying to create the ambience of a fight and the emotions of a battle and he kind of wants you to put you in the boots of these soldiers because of what it would really be like if you were on the field with these men and how you would, wouldn't you'd turn just left or right and you wouldn't know what was coming. So it kind of put keeps you on your toes. And again, he, he creates this like visceral feeling of the fight. Yeah, this is the first film where Ridley Scott really used that technique of being a high shutter speed and a slow frame rate. And it's that choppy editing. It's like when movement's very choppy, that's because the frame rate is probably around six frames per second. And then when 
you play that back at 24 frames per second, it's very choppy rather than smooth. And actually, one of the reasons why they did this was because on the days that they were shooting the battle, the sun would set and they were running out of, out of time to film. And so rather than just packing up and filming more the next day, they decided they could get maybe like another half hour to an hour's worth of filming if they lowered the frame rate to six frames per second. And then they just kept filming. And this, by lowering the frame rate, you allow a lot more light into the camera, which gives you the ability to shoot in very low light situations. And so that's why uh, a lot of these shots are very choppy with that kind of technique of the slow frame rate because they were just trying to get as much footage in as they could. I think they were also trying to, if not replicate, try to try to imitate what they did in Saving Private Ryan with that, again, similar structure to the opening of the film, this great epic opening battle. And again, very the way Spielberg shot a lot of those, that scene is very disorienting, uh, quick cuts, and again, that shutter speed and the choppiness of when everyone's disoriented. I think it's a fantastically edited sequence. I think it's the strength of the sequence comes from the editing because if you look at it, it's kind of a, the sequence is kind of all over the place uh, continuity-wise. And the filmmakers did this on purpose because they felt they could get away with it based on how they were planning to edit and shoot it. And so if you look at the scene, there are several shots where it's snowing and then the next shot, it's not snowing. And there's other shots where it's daytime and the other shots where it's nighttime. But because they, the editor, I can't remember his name, he did such a great job with this that it, it all goes unseen because when you watch the scene, you feel like you're in the battle. It doesn't have to be completely accurate. You don't really see exactly who's coming from where and the exact positions of everyone, but you feel like you're in the middle of a battle. I think that's that works better in some ways. And it's just like Maximus at the end of the fight, you like don't even know that you've won already. Yeah. And like you're you're turning and seeing, you're pulling the sword on your friends and everything. You're like, oh wait, it's just you, pal, what's up? <laughs> and you, again, you're just like him, you're like, oh, it's over? Oh, well, we won the fight, hell yeah. So again, giving you that feeling you're, like you're actually in the fight. Yeah. And very similar to the mob of Rome, which we'll get into later is, the spectacle and how, if you think about it, when you watch Gladiator and they constantly talk about this spectacle and entertaining the mob and keeping and getting control of the mob, we're in a way, this new form of mob where we're watching this spectacle of a movie and movies are the new spectacle for the masses. And I guess you could call us the, the modern mob. And, mm -hmm. and rather, and a lot of films today have taken just spectacle and gone with that and sacrifice story. I mean, not to hate on a lot of superhero movies, but you can oftentimes you can see that. Which you is don't why, like the Transformer stories, <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the reasons why I love this opening sequence in this battle is because it's it's amazing spectacle, but it's not perfect action. It's not crisp. Mm -hmm. It's not clean. It's messy. It's it's all over the place. It's in your face. So that's what again what creates that feeling like you're there. Yeah, if you were in the middle of a battle, you'd be your adrenaline would be would be kicking. It would be moving so fast you wouldn't be able to uh, factor in everything that's happening. So I think it's accurate to the sensation of being in war. And one of my favorite aspects of the film is before the right before the battle starts, Maximus kneels down to the to the the ground and he he gathers some dirt in his hand and he, and he rubs the dirt in his hands and he does this before every battle. And I think the reason why Maximus does this is because his life as a farmer, he has a connection to the earth. He's reminding himself of his connection to the earth and who he is really. And I think that. When he's preparing himself with the dirt, he's making sure, like, I have to get home to my family, to who I really am. I have to get through this battle. And obviously, Maximus being the great general he is with uh, forces of the Roman Empire, they they defeat the Germanian barbarians. And 
we get the great introduction of both Marcus Aurelius and Commodus, and these are the three main characters in the first act, and we get a sense of each person's character and personality, and, you know, we talk about how Maximus is clearly well-respected, and this is where Marcus Aurelius clearly shows affection for Maximus instead of showing affection for Commodus, who he kind of seems uninterested in. He seems very devoted to Maximus, and Maximus devoted to Marcus Aurelius, and they even take that walk, and Aurelius gives all the credit of the battle, of course, to Maximus as he watched the top of the hill. And, and when even when Commodus rides into the area, it's right when the entire army is cheering on Maximus. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't be worse timing for him. You can just tell that Commodus is envious of everything Maximus has, including the loyalty and respect of all these men and the affection and love of his father. And even Commodus offers to sacrifice 100 bulls in the honor of the battle in his father's name. His father says, spare the bulls. And really, when you watch that, Commodus seems instant, insincere, even jealous of Maximus's glory when he offers this sacrifice to his father and also he seems like oh did i miss the battle did i miss it like he's upset that he missed the battle but you know we already know like he's the last person you would want on your side in a fight exactly because as we hear later on he's been afraid his entire life i think you've been afraid your entire life (laughs) (laughs) and also we we get to see the the relationship between commodus and lucilla where commodus when he's around lucilla is much different than when he's around others he's still pretty immature and arrogant around others but when he's with lucilla he almost resorts back to this childlike personality where he's like a little kid when they're riding in the carriage where he's constantly asking her questions like a, a little brother and then when they, he gets out of the carriage he just go, he asks her for a kiss as like as though he's a child asking for a kiss from his mother so he has this very strange um relationship with lucilla that he, she only knows about where he is very childlike in a lot of ways and he clearly has unnatural feelings for Lucilla mm-hmm. which comes into play later on in the film but after the battle um, and there's a celebration afterwards we get to see Maximus and Lucilla in their reunion which clearly from the scene you can tell that Lucilla and Maximus have a past whether it was intimate or not you, I think it probably was intimate and they might have had a secret relationship no it was yeah yeah um, can, later on in the film they, they pretty much say it yeah but um, I think obviously it was it was kept quiet because of her nobility and him just being a soldier at the time. So you can tell that there's something there and connection. And Maximus, again, being a very noble man, he refuses these desires for Lucilla. Um, and he just sticks on his path of he's finished his job and he just wants to go home to his his son and his wife and go back to his farm and finish his life off there and live happy. After winning this battle, Maximus believes that this was the last fight and the next thing he's going to do is ask Marcus Aurelius to set him free and allow him to go back to his family. But uh, but Marcus Aurelius has different plans for him. And also, already, Commodus is scheming as an emperor in the making by telling Maximus, even though Maximus wants to go home, he's like, I will call on you very soon. And he's also trying he's trying to get Maximus to become an ally to him as emperor, and his father's still alive. Yeah. So Ma- Commodus is already scheming his way into the seat. But I think Commodus at this point is assuming he's going to be the heir yeah. to Marcus Aurelius. But he seems like the only thing, he doesn't even really care about his father's death. He's very much more focused on being emperor now. I don't think he even cares about his father at all, and I think he's just kind of doing what he thinks his father wants and he- telling his father what he thinks his father wants to hear. And um, next what happens is Maximus and Caesar, Marcus Aurelius, have this very... Um, personal conversation where like you just said maximus is asking to 
end his career as a general and be free to go live with his family and and raise his his child and harvest his crops because that's really all he wants and that's what he wants to finish his life off as and marcus aurelius has different plans like you said where marcus aurelius wants maximus to become the new caesar and protector of rome and give power back to the people of rome so he wants maximus to make it a republic again and he knows maximus is the only one who can do this because as we talked about earlier he offers this because maximus is of such high moral character where he would never let the power of rome corrupt him yeah that's why when maximus says no marcus really says that's why it must be you this is why it must be you richard harris is so good in this movie he's fantastic died a few years later anyone who doesn't peace. know he, he also played dumbledore in the first two harry potter films and marcus really at this point of his life he's he's coming to his end and he knows he's going to die very soon and in his eyes, he's not sure if he's left a good legacy for Rome because, as we talked about earlier, he spent most of his time as emperor in middle in war. I think he says out of 20 years, he's only known four years of peace, so the 16 years of war. And he's worried that he will leave Rome worse off than when he got it. Despite how large it has become and how rich and wealthy yeah. and golden age. Yeah, and so he, he questions how good he was as emperor and he thinks that his and he, i think he believes that the 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 only chance he has to salvage rome's um future and his own legacy is if he passes the power to an honorable man like maximus who will ensure the future of rome and when maximus asks why communists won't be emperor it's because marcus Aurelius says that communist is not a moral man he has poor ethics poor morals he would let the power corrupt him he would bring Rome down, which he inevitably will do. And the scene ends with Maximus not giving an answer to Marcus Aurelius and um, leaves Marcus for the night. But then he afterwards, when he's with Cicero, he he kind of hints at it because he tells Cicero, we may not be able to go home after all. Mm-hmm. So you can tell he he's probably made up his mind that he will accept the offer. Yeah, and then we have what I think is the most powerful scene in the film is the patricide of Commodus of Marcus Aurelius. It's one of the most intense and important scenes of the story um, as Marcus confesses to Commodus that he will be putting Rome in the hands of Maximus instead of Commodus, and who was his direct heir. And up until this point, it seemed again as though Commodus thought he was going to be getting the emperor, the empire. And I mean, you you can't help but feel for Commodus at this time because he was expecting this his whole life, despite being a spoiled kid and be, being kind of a brat. Yeah, you can empathize with him. He's pre- he's been preparing for this his entire life. Yeah, and it gets taken away from him at the last moment because he knew that Marcus Aurelius was on his deathbed soon. He was he knew he was on his way out, and so he was just waiting and and biding his time for this. And they have a very emotional and powerful scene. And I think one of the most important lines is Commodus says. You wrote me once listing the four chief virtues, wisdom, justice, fortitude, and temperance. And he realized that he had none of those traits, which are all traits of stoicism, which is the main theme of the film. And he did have ambition and uses that ambition to take the empire for himself by killing his father in a horrific way by suffocating him in his chest. Yeah, and it seems as though, obviously it wasn't planned, it was was an act of passion but he doesn't seem to feel any regret afterwards yeah he's very emotional during but after this deadly embrace 
he's gotten what he wants. And again, this is an inaccuracy. This didn't really happen. Aurelius actually made Commodus co-emperor at age 15, and then at age 19, at age 19, Commodus became the full emperor when Marcus Aurelius really died. So Commodus was spoiled, though. He was a spoiled brat. <laughs> I mean, a lot of what he does in his character is very similar to real life in, in the film. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, Maximus is, uh, is told about this by Commodus, about Marcus Aurelius' death, and he sees right through Commodus immediately. And when Commodus asks for his hand of loyalty, Maximus rejects it. Yeah, and this is a, an ultimate slight again because he says our great father has died. And he, he looked upon Maximus as a brother, if not wanting to. He kind of, you know, out of respect for his father probably didn't. You know, they knew each other as kids growing up. And he needs, he needs Maximus. Yeah, Maximus is, has the command of so many men. Mm -hmm. And obviously this rejection causes Maximus to be put on an assassination and he's going to be killed and his father and his family is going to be killed too. And also a lot of people can say that Maximus could have just pretended to be loyal and then taken his hand and then taken command of the army and, and taken over the city after that. But Maximus is so morally good that he could not lie like that. He would rather face death than, than lie to himself. And so I think that's why he rejects Commodus when he, he could have pretended, but I think He's such a morally high person that he can't. And Lucilla also sees through Commodus and knows that he murdered her father. But as as Maximus pointed out when he had a conversation with Lucilla, he says he he tells her that he thinks she has a a, a skill for survival. And that is a a driving character trait which propels her actions forward throughout this entire film, survival, because she's put in this this place where. She has a young son, and her brother is pretty much mentally unhinged and very dangerous. And so everything she does is to protect her son. And so this is why, even though she knows that Commodus killed her father, she pledges uh, loyalty to him. And then Maximus is taken to uh, the battlefield by the Praetorian guards. This who, is one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, Praetorian actually means uh, they're soldiers in the Roman Empire. Hmm. Maximus outsmarts these Praetorian guards and tricks them basically into giving him an honorable death by by execution, by beheading. And this is an opportunity for him to escape these guards. And it's a great scene. And he, he has to, we, sh we see again the great battle prowess and skill of Maximus when he's handcuffed with a sword and he has to fight a guy on a horse. Yeah, it's a great scene. And it's got one of my favorite lines when. The other Praetorian, after he kills the first one, is trying to pull his sword out of the sheath and it's stuck. And he says, the frost, sometimes it makes the blade stick. It's a great, <laughs> great line. It's a great line, but I don't think if it's not Russell Crowe, it comes out as well. I think a lot of these lines in this movie will come out as well. <laughs> <laughs> Russell Crowe is really good in this movie. <laughs> then he, he rides across the country and he, he has to get he has to beat the, the Praetorian... Praetorian guards before they reach his family. Yeah, he has to get back to Spain on, on horseback. And we have this amazing sequence of thunder and lightning, obviously showing the, the wrath of God. And Maximus is hallucinating and he's seeing the fields and he's seeing his, his wife and his son and he's trying to make it. And then there's just this, this, this sad, this, there's a scene where he just uh, has a fire on a campground, which, which is sad to see because you obviously wish he could ride forever, but he can't. He has to stop and take a break. Mm -hmm. So. He, he does have limitations of how fast he can travel. And a lot of people have problem with how how far he rides in such a short period of time in this film. They're like, how would he ride from, from A to B so quickly? I don't really have a problem with it. I think it's, I mean, 
not 100% accurate, but he seems to be riding for a few days, which I think would, would work out to that distance. But um, I, I, I think it's, I don't even care about it at all. It's a movie, yeah. you know, is what it is. And then we have the very moving and emotional scene of him going to, he arrives home in his scorched fields and his burnt down house, and he finds his wife and son hanged and burned. And Ridley does a an amazing job of just capturing just their charred feet hanging from above. And it's even more emotional than we than if we probably saw their entire bodies. So mm-hmm. it's a very um, moving scene. It's it's sad. It's horrifying. And you can't help but feel nothing but dread for, for Maximus. And then one of my favorite parts of this movie, which happens next, which is just brilliant filmmaking, is Maximus gets captured uh, by these slave traders. And Ridley does a great job. He doesn't show him getting picked up. He doesn't show him who grabbed him. He just cuts to him being grabbed and then cuts to black and then cuts with the visions and then cuts to him on a cart being towed away. And we don't even know what happened to him yet. And it's just, I think it's brilliant filmmaking because you don't have to show everything in a movie. I love directors who give audience members a chance to interpret things that are going on and, and not make them feel stupid and have to show them every single thing. Yeah, exactly. And also it puts us into the perspective of Maximus, who's been unconscious and hallucinating off and on for hours so we're in his shoes we don't know what happened he doesn't know what happened the first thing he sees is juba jimon hutsu's character who i love in this movie and juba ends up becoming uh like a a a breath of levity in this film he seems he's a very kind man obviously he says he was a hunter so it seems as though he was probably captured from his village and taken into slavery and he seems like Maximus. He's a good man. And he's also lost his family like Maximus has too. Mm-hmm. But the thing that Juba has is he has faith. And it's this faith that he eventually gives to Maximus to help give him strength to pursue his, his path of vengeance. And it's also faith that helps Juba become a part of Maximus's like army and crew and, squad. and a squad and, and a potential martyr for, for, for Maximus. And they... They both feed off each other, each other and their energy, and they're very similar, and they have a very deep connection with one another. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code Raiders15 for 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get your movie posters and has been for years. They have been great to work with. They have now, they're now sponsoring our movie poster contest giveaways, which we do one to two a month, so stay tuned. We have a very special one coming out soon, so you want to stay tuned for when we announce that. MoviePosters.com offers great options on original movie designs, framing, backlight, canvas, and even plaque designs. Use coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today at MoviePosters.com, which will come in handy if you don't win the contests. And after this, Maximus and the others are purchased by uh, Proximo and Zucabar. And Zucabar is just like another outskirts city of Rome, and it's really fascinating to see these these cities in different cultures, and I think this is in northern coast of Africa, these cities. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And then we're taken to Proximo's home, which is part his home and part a training quarters uh, facility for for slaves who will become gladiators. And we quickly learn that Proximo has no interest in in creating great fighters. He bought these men so that they can die and he can profit from their deaths because gladiator traders, they would buy men as gladiators and then they then they would give them off them up in the games and they would get paid for their stock pretty much that they gave into the game so proximo 
is all about turning men and so he can make as much money as possible. Yeah, and at this point, though, again, Maximus has lost everything, and he seems to have lost maybe not his will to live yet, but he seems very apathetic now. Um, he doesn't want to fight back when he's in his training. Yeah, there's that scene with Hagen, the big guy. getting marked up, and uh, they don't know what to really make of him yet because he, he won't fight. He refuses to fight. He doesn't even fight until he gets in his first gladiator bout. And um, there's this great scene where... Um, you know, Maximus, he's now a slave and he's about to become Maximus the Gladiator. And really, he's being called the Spaniard because he's trying to hide his identity because he doesn't want anyone to know that he survived his uh, his uh, execution. And he removes the SPQR tattoo on his arm. And that's because Commodus is now the god of Rome because SPQR stands for Senatus Popolcus. Romanus, which is the model for the original government of the Senate and the Roman people. So he's dishonoring Commodus by scratching off his tattoo. Yeah, it's it's the mark of the legion. And I think it's the first step to him becoming gladiator. He's erasing his past. While this is happening, we finally get to see Rome in its entirety. And it's it's breathtaking in this movie. They used a lot of miniature work blended with CGI. But like we said earlier, you have no idea how many buildings and structures were actually in Rome. They were just built on top of each other. And it was just incredible that a civilization was able to accomplish this so far long in the past. Yeah, it's a beautiful city and the structures are amazing. It's actually very similar to what Hitler wanted to do with France. And France was going to be his like vacation country for him and his officers and he mm-hmm. loved it so much and he wanted to turn france into basically what ancient rome used to look like with these massive stone buildings an entire city of stone buildings yeah he had his uh a grand scheming architect who created the entire layout and built a miniature scale model in his office of what the uh i, I can't remember what he was going to call france but um what that city was that country was going to look like thank god that did not happen yep <laughs> The people clearly aren't happy to see Commodus, and then the senators are clearly very kind and polite with Commodus, but also don't know what to make of him as a ruler, because they have they all know him. He grew up around them. And they even say the line where he acts he comes home acting like he's a conquering hero when he hasn't conquered anything, he hasn't won anything yet. Yeah. His father won the battle. We're cutting back to Maximus and He's going to take part in his first gladiator fight. And it's a great scene where they're walking through that hall and there's just blood pouring down from the ceiling and the sounds of, yeah. and the sounds of fighting and, and the crowd and the cheers. And you don't know what's going to happen. You know what's on the other side of the door and you just see the cracks of light and people walking on the other side of it. And these guys, they're not wearing any armor. They just have their robes and a sword and that's it. And again, some of the men, obviously, of these gladiators who are going to, to their death are just like, normal looking people they look like farmers or peasants and they look like they've never held a sword before and there's that guy who pees his pants right there uh right before he walks out onto the ground and maximus is like oh great i'm chained to this dude are you kidding me <laughs> no he's changed the juba oh yeah he's changed the other guy the big uh, hagen's chained to yeah him. my bad so um but again these aren't what gladiators were really like the gladiators again were well fed they were well trained they were going into battle prepared but keep in mind this was uh at this part of the film um the gladiator games were not happening anymore in Rome, so uh, Proximo and other gladiator traders were taking their their gladiators around the outskirts of the country, and so it would it would make sense that like they aren't the best gladiators around. It's like AAA baseball. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It might be Double A in this one, <laughs> the first one. 
And this is a great scene and a great battle. Again, Ridley wants to put you in the arena. You never really see the crowd at all until the end of the fight. You're just in there with the gladiators. You're in there with Maximus and Hagen and Juba. And you're watching this great epic fight. And these guys have these like like cow heads on their on top of their heads. It's scary. And like, it's pretty intense. They obviously look like demonic human beings. And obviously that's probably what they were going for. And it's ruthless and brutal and visceral and man, Maximus tears people up, and so does in Juba and Hagen. And Maximus also shows his ability to lead uh, once again, where he and Juba begin working together to to kill the last couple of guys. But it's a great scene, and I love when um that guy who peed himself, uh, he like gets killed right away, and then but Hagen's dragging him around, so he has to like chop his arm off in order for him <laughs> to get free of him. <laughs> and then Hagen just lifts the guy up and puts him on that spike, which is pretty crazy. Oh my god, Hagen's coolness! And the end of the fight is great because again, we don't see the crowd until after the fight, and then there's that like Michael Bay esque 360 shot of, <laughs> of Maximus and Juba, and they're just this is the first time Maximus is like feeling the crowd and the atmosphere, and he's looking around, everyone's cheering for him and his fellow gladiators, and you know this is uh, an inevitably a, a little bit of a foreshadow that Maximus. is is going to he be, starts off as the slave with nothing and he he ends up going to rome with kind of like his own little army and a ton of respect and loyalty i think this is a, a strange moment for maximus because he spent his entire life fighting in real wars and now he's in the middle of a battle and after the battle there's cheers and applause and and people are happy and so it's not something he's used to having as a reaction to warfare and so i think it's pretty surreal for him and then back at back in Rome, Commodus is trying to deal with the Senate, and he's clearly Commodus is thinks he's smarter than everyone else. Uh, and he is in some ways, but he also is very immature in a lot of ways. And the Senate, are, they kind of talk to him like he's a like a boy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's that scene where he goes to the Senate in like full war attire, and he's got his sword, and he's spinning the sword on the ground. He's he's, he's being obnoxious and and looking for attention, basically. And I think he's trying to because he's weak internally. He's a weak man. He's he's got again poor morals. He's insecure. He's not very confident. So he goes to the Senate with a sword. Basically, what he's doing is spinning the sword. Is like if anyone disagrees with me, they're getting their head chopped off. Yeah. And so he, he even threatens Gracchus. So he has to project like this fake tough guy masculinity because really he's not that much of a masculine person compared to maximus yeah exactly and this is where he reveals his plan for rome where in order to gain the trust and the love of the people he's going to put on 150 days of games and this was actually a thing that uh emperors often employed in rome and it's actually the way in which emperors eventually took power in rome from a republic to an empire where the they would distract the public with gladiator games and and the pantheon and chariot races every single day and they would bombast the public with entertainment and blood and and death and while the people were distracted they did not realize how many rights were being taken away year after year until eventually the country fell from a republic into a dictatorship of an empire and so they the use of the games to distract the public was the main reason why they were able to take control. Yeah, so Commodus lifts that ban that actually Marcus Aurelia had put on Rome. I don't know if he actually did in real life, but that was he had put that on Rome in the movie too. And Commodus was the one who brought those games. And he wants to be a dictator. He hates the Senate. He's opposed by them. And the Senate's led by Gracchus, who uh, is a very important figure in the film and senator. And... 
in that meeting, I think the senators are talking about how they want him to provide sewers for the city's Greek district because the plague is raging. There are actual problems happening to the city. But again, like you just said, these this season of games is going to distract everybody. And they and even Gracchus is with another um, senator outside the Coliseum for like lunch, and they're they're reading the pamphlet of pamphlet of the games, and they talk about how clever it actually is because that's how you win the power of Rome is is winning the affection of the mob because the mob is Rome. Yeah, Rome is the mob. And um, right after this is one of my favorite moments in the movie is Commodus is uh, telling this to Lucilla. And he has a small scale miniature of the Colosseum. And he goes to the little miniature Colosseum and he places two fighters in the in the floor of the Colosseum, which clearly is a foreshadow to him and Maximus eventually ending up fighting together at the end in the Colosseum. And Commodus in real life actually fancied himself a gladiator, but obviously he rigged the rules whenever he went into the Colosseum because he... He didn't obviously want to die. There were dull swords. He would fight small people. He would fight dwarves. He would fight disfigured people. So he would go in there and fight. And actually, in in history, in actual uh, in actual events, it actually led to the people losing respect for Commodus because he would go in there with unfair rules, and that's one of the things that led to his fall. Mm-hmm. What an arrogant guy! What an insecure dude, man. Huh? And then we're going back to Maximus, and we don't know if this is a second fight or not. Clearly, he's been rising up the ranks, and people recognize they're him. Chanting and they're his chanting name. for Spaniard, and he goes out there by himself and just messes up a bunch of dudes. And you can tell when he enters the arena, even though he's fighting like six, seven guys, they're afraid of him, even though they're huge dudes, and they're like waiting for him to come in and waiting for him to make the first move because they know that apparently Spaniard has been tearing people up in the <laughs> in the low level uh, gladiator <laughs> games on the outskirts of Zuckerbar. So he's been lighting it up, and he just tears these guys apart, and he does it so quickly, so efficiently. He doesn't even get hit. Yeah, he doesn't get touched, and we have that crazy end where he cuts the dude's head off with the two swords. So it's a crazy, not even a fair fight, even though it's him against six guys. And you can tell that after the fight, Maximus is just disgusted with with what he's done in the crowd, and we have that infamous line where he says, Are you not entertained? Because no one's cheering. He's just killed a bunch of guys. He's like, isn't this what you wanted? Is this not why you are here? And he throws the sword at the people on the top. And then we get the cheering and the Spaniard, and people are realizing that this guy is something special. Mm -hmm. It's a great scene. And this leads to him meeting with Proximo, who's very curious about Maximus and recognizes his talent. And Proximo informs him that they're going to go to Rome. And he also asks what Maximus wants. And Maximus tells him that he wants his freedom like Proximo won his freedom. We also learned that Proximo was also a gladiator who won his freedom from Marcus Aurelius. And it's a very important moment where Proximo explains to Maximus that in order to win your freedom to stand among the emperor, you have to win the crowd. And the crowd didn't love Proximo because he was killed quickly like Maximus does. Proximo won his freedom and stood before the emperor because the crowd loved him. And he explains to Maximus that if you want to be free and stand in front of the emperor, you have to win the crowd. And so you Maxim- have to put on a show. Yeah, you have to put on a show. And, and Maximus realizes it's not enough just killing people efficiently and quickly. You have to entertain people. And then Proxima also gives Maximus his old armor, which becomes the iconic uh, chess piece with the two horses on it. It's a beautiful vest. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. And I also love the... Uh, the helmet that Maximus uses in this movie. It's so badass. And then the men are taken to Rome. And imagine being men like this where you you live, you spent your entire life in a village in an ancient culture. 
and you, you like grew up on a farm in a desert and then you're taken to the greatest city ever built by man and you're put in front of the Coliseum and it just must be like unbelievable to even comprehend. Yeah, and there's that great line from Juba where he says, I had no idea men could build such things. And it's pretty incredible. Again, the Colosseum looks fantastic in this movie. When they enter Rome, this is where Maximus meets Lucius, who is he finds out to be Lucia's, I mean, Lucilla, who he finds out to be Lucilla's son and Commodus's nephew, which means that he has to watch his back. And we have that great scene where he's joking around with the little boy outside of his cage. He finds out who he really is, and he has to just stay quiet and kind of back off into the shadows. So now Maximus knows that he has to somehow hide his identity while he's fighting in the arena. That kid is Bruce Willis' son in Unbreakable. Oh, yeah, you're right. It is. <laughs> Every time I watch that movie, I'm like, where is that kid from? Oh, it's Unbreakable. Really, Scott really built the Coliseum, but he didn't, he didn't build the entire Coliseum. What he did was he built about a little bit more than a third of the Coliseum, and then the rest of it was empty space. And so for all these battle sequences in the Coliseum, what they would do is, so like they, they would film like, say, Commodus aside with that set behind him, and then they would literally just move the camera a little bit and then put Maximus there, and it would take place, that would be the other side of the Coliseum. So he, they used camera trickery and, and, and very intelligent um, shooting methods to film the entire Coliseum visually, but by only building a third of it. Yeah, it's great. The behind-the-scenes photos are incredible. Yeah, it's super cool. And then we have one of my favorite scenes, the Battle of Carthage. The Barbarian Horde. And what's really cool about uh, gladiator fights is oftentimes they would be depictions of famous battles throughout history, and mostly they were very much mismatches. And so, for example, the Battle of Carthage was a, a bloodbath and a slaughter, and the slaves who are put up against the the empire's gladiators in this are actually meant to lose horribly. Yeah, because you can tell by they're going up against people in chariots with spears and better better weaponry, and it's kind of just a bunch of dudes. But again, Maximus must not only win this battle, he must also get the attention of their crowd and win them over in order to keep surviving. And he also understands that the only way he can win this battle, this barbarian horde battle, is by leading and commanding the respect of his men and this is a clear indicator that Maximus, if given the opportunity, would have been a great Caesar if he be, if he came into power. Yeah, he turned a, a group of slaves, and half of them aren't even warriors, and he turned them into a, a fully-fledged operating uh, mechanism of warfare. And it's, it's an incredible scene where everything's—there's no CGI in this movie, in this scene. There's no CGI in this scene. It's people really riding horses and chariots and— and what's cooler than watching Russell Crowe riding a horse with a sword? Oh, I, mean, I love the end of the fight where he's, he's in, this, in the horse. And, and Russell Crowe is, is an, a very well-trained horseback rider. And it shows. And he does all his own riding in this. And I love the, the little spin that he does at the end of the battle. Yeah. And Commodus is like, Ooh, and, and, and <laughs> Maximus just lights it up. And he takes, like you said, these slaves and these gladiators and destroys all these other fighters. And he even shows his his honor where he, Hagen is about to get run over by the chariot, but Maximus uh, runs and pushes him out of the way, risking his own life to save Hagen. And I think that's a big turning point for Hagen where um, he Maximus had no reason to save him. He's, they're just slaves in a fight. It doesn't really matter. He's just building respect and loyalty. Yeah, and then using um, 
uh, great tactics like building the shield and sticking together. Um, they're able to defeat this insurmountable enemy and once they start killing the chariot riders and, and they take over it, it's just a bloodbath and it's it's a great scene. Um, and I love when Russell Crowe, when, when Maximus is riding that horse and he just charges at the other two ch chariot racers and he's just slashing his sword at them. And he's just showing that there's never been a gladiator like him. And you can tell that Commodus loves it. He loves the blood. He loves the gore. He's just a mad emperor, and he just wants what he he wants pleasure out of out of being emperor. And this is exactly what he, what's fueling him to to keep this these games going. And also during this scene, we finally get to hear Hans Zimmer's full hero theme, and it's one of my favorite uh, themes in all of Hans Zimmer's scores. And once the theme sets in, the 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 specific hero dun, theme. Dun, 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 <laughs> like this is the first time you hear the entire theme and as the action's happening while this is playing it's just an incredible moment and so maximus and his his men gladiator fighters defeat the uh other people in the gladiator arena and commodus wants to meet maximus or he doesn't know who he is yet he wants to meet the leader of these gladiators who's wearing that super cool mask because he's trying to hide his identity. <laughs> he, he was pleasantly surprised by the outcome of the fight. Yeah, so he goes down with his nephew Lucius to to meet Maximus, who who they're praising for his, his prowess and his ability and call him Hercules and, and uh, Hector Reborn. And for Maximus, this is his chance he's been waiting for, to be next to the emperor, and that's why he secretly takes that arrowhead in his hand because he's planning to murder Commodus once he gets close enough. But then once Lucius shows up, uh, he decides not to do it because he doesn't want to harm the boy. Mm -hmm. And so the epic scene here is where <sighs> Commodus forces Maximus to reveal himself after he turns his back on him. And Maximus has that amazing line of dialogue where he's like, my name is Maximus Decimus Arrhenius, general of the legions of the north, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in, the, in, this, in life. this life or the next. It's <laughs> so good. It's great. I, I get Every time I see the scene, it's just I just jump up and scream, fuck yeah! And and now Commodus is met with this dilemma where he wants to kill Maximus right now. He's also embarrassed that Maximus survived and that people are finding out that he was once a Roman general. And Maximus is, I mean, and Commodus is again met with this problem where he wants to kill Maximus, but he can't just execute him. He can't just kill him because... The crowd loves him. They watch this fight, and they love this Spaniard, whoever this is, Maximus. They would defeat the purpose of having the games. Yeah, so he doesn't want to lose favor of the crowd because he would lose power. So Commodus needs Maximus alive for now, and he needs him to eventually die in the arena. So this is why, why Commodus just lets him live because he needs to let him live because he can't just kill him in front of everybody. Yeah, because if he kills Maximus, then he turns Maximus into a martyr. Whereas if Maximus dies in a gladiator battle... No one would be upset about it because that's part of the part of the game. And so, by letting him live, he pleases the crowd. Who my, this makes my hair stand up every time I watch it. Begin to chant Maximus out loud for the entire journey of him going down the arena and down into the back outside of the Colosseum. It's a it's a great moment. I always get goosebumps when I see this one. And the soldiers are walking with him. He, he's like surrounded by his posse, and they're like they're walking like they're kind of protecting him, like they're his bodyguards. You know what I mean? And other gladiators are like saying Maximus and like sh saluting him and everything. So he's already gaining so much respect with other slaves and other gladiators. After this, Lucilla visits Maximus in the dungeons to to speak with him because, like everyone else, she thought he was dead, and she wants to help him. And this is where Lucilla shows 
her true nature where she wants to find a way to to defeat Commodus and get him out of power. And Maximus clearly um, is the the best way to do that. They want she wants to try to form this coup against her brother because Commodus, as we talked about earlier, wants to destroy Rome, which is what his father loved because because of that's what his father loved. And he's secretly selling off all the wheat reserves and grain reserves of the city, which is going to leave the entire population hungry and a lot of people are going to die to pay for the games. So he's doing that to pay for the games and it's going to destroy the city, but Commodus doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. And so he's, he's destroying the city. And this is one of the main reasons why her sister is trying to form this coup against him. That and also because he's terrorizing her. Exactly. And <laughs> he has this weird relationship with her. And obviously he's trying to be intimate with her and he's clearly in love with her or, or he's obsessed with her, obsessed with her in a and weird he's obsessed way. Obsessed with obtaining her love. But Maximus has reached this point where he, he doesn't want to help Lucilla. All he wants to do is kill Commodus. Otherwise, he doesn't care about anything else. And so he, he tells Lucilla to get away from her. But he still doesn't understand the power that he actually has because he says, I'm at the mercy of the gods only with the power to amuse a mob. And, sh- and she tries to explain to him that the mob is Rome. And that's why Commodus has the powers because the mob loves him right now for the games. And... If he can keep gaining the favor of the the mob for himself, he can get the power of Rome. Up next, we have another great battle, the Tigris battle, with um, the famous gladiator Tigris, who's retired, but he um, obviously is probably getting paid a ton of money by communists to come out of retirement to fight Maximus. And this is also, I think what the strength of Ridley Scott with the action pieces here is that every battle is very different from the other. You have the, the war... You have the first gladiator fight, you have the second one where he's by himself, and you have the Battle of Carthage, and now you have the tiger fight. They're all very different, and I think that's what sets them apart from other action movies. And this is a great fight because it's just a one-on-one fight, but it's obviously, it's rigged. You know, Commodus planned this out so that Maximus, there's no way he's going to survive. It's going to be him versus Epic Gladiator. They're going to throw in some tigers too. It's going to be an unfair fight. But of course, Maximus being Maximus and being such a great fighter, he defeats Tigris and he wins this epic battle. And it's crazy because they used real tigers to film this. Obviously, they did have stuffed ones and, and fake ones, but there were a bunch of real tigers on set. They had real tigers. Those, those were real leashes that only two people were holding for each tiger. That was really how the setup was. And there were a couple of moments where a tiger landed only a couple of feet away from uh, Russell Crowe in real life. But um, for the entire scenes... He and the other actor who played Tigris, they were doing their fight choreography literally 15 feet away from Tigris. And the trainers had tranquilizer guns on the ready just pointed at the Tigers just in case one got loose. It's insane. And it's a great moment when the first Tiger comes out and it goes after Maximus and he has to beat it off. He has to hit it off him with a shield. And I remember as a kid seeing this scene, I thought it was just the most intense thing I've ever seen. Yeah, it's pretty badass. It's mm-hmm. amazing, and hopefully none of these tigers were harmed or anything bad happened to them. I'm sure they were taken care of. Who knows? But, you know, this is 2000, so animals are being treated better on set for sure. Mm-hmm. But great acting by these tigers. Terrific. <laughs> <laughs> and so Maximus defeats Tigris, and now it's up to Commodus to decide whether he lives or dies, whether he should kill Tigris or not. And so he decides, listening to the crowd, that Tigris must die with the thumbs down. But Maximus refuses to til- to kill Tigris. I don't think he ever wanted to kill Tigris or ever would have, but it's another defiance of the emperor. 
Yeah, I think more than anything, he just wanted to defy whatever Commodus said. And ironically, this makes the crowd love Maximus even more. And they end up calling him Maximus the Merciful, Mm -hmm. which enrages Commodus because he doesn't, he can't believe that he denied what the crowd wanted, but yet the crowd ended up loving him even more for it. And now, this puts Commodus at a tough place because even now, more than ever, he can't kill Maximus. And he needs to try and scheme and figure out a way to end this man's life. And at the same time, he's starting to learn about these coups because Lucilla brings Gracchus to Maximus to explain to him that there are men in the Senate who want to help them and want Commodus out of the emperor and out of the throne. And so Maximus eventually, he agrees to work in this coup with Gracchus and Lucilla. And he has his squire Cicero tell the men that their general lives and gives him instructions of of where to be and when to wait for him. The plan is to have him escape the city, meet up with the army, and once he shows his face to the army, all of the men will will pledge loyalty to Maximus because they love him. And then the plan would be to invade Rome and take over Rome, kill Commodus and Commodus's men and Commodus's army, and then do what Marcus Aurelius wanted. Unfortunately, though, Senator Falco and Commodus uncover this plot to free Maximus before they can do it. Commodus is pretty much unawares of this coup that's being planned until he runs into his nephew Lucius, who's playing sword fighting with the with the slaves. And Lucius reveals that he's a gladiator and that he's Maximus, the savior of Rome. And this makes Commodus very curious, and he, and he asks Lucius, who told you Maximus was the savior of Rome? And he whispers into Commodus's ear, and Commodus's reaction is rage and, and, and fury. And this cuts to Lucilla and Commodus. And, and a, one of the best scenes of the movie where Commodus threatens Lucilla with Lucius's life. Yeah, he's telling him that story, and he's talking about the busy little bees, how they're plotting behind their back, and... Commodus uses this threat to force this new kind of relationship on Lucilla where he's going to stop this coup. He's going to kill Maximus. He's going to take over the empire. and He's going to force Lucilla to be his partner and give him, give him an heir to the throne. And again, this, this relationship, this ancestral relationship is so odd and, and uncomfortable at times. And, and he's probably doing it for a lot of reasons to insert, obviously, dominance over Lucilla, his older sister, um, maybe to humiliate her for betraying him. He's also interested in creating a pure blood heir with uh, the blood of him and his sister. This is also a way to get back at Maximus, who they had their past relationship. Probably also a way to get back posthumously at his father, who loved Lucilla more than Commodus. He's got a lot of motivation. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Maximus's plan is foiled and he's captured. And Cicero is killed. Many of the slaves are killed as well. I think this is a really important scene, though, because it shows that many of these gladiators were so loyal to Maximus and died for Maximus and became martyrs for his cause and his leadership and the respect they had for him. Exactly. That's the kind of person he is. And then this is one of the most intense moments where Maximus is tied up underneath the the floor of the Colosseum and Commodus arrives... And there's this, this great, great dialogue scene. Commodus tells Maximus that he's going to fight him in the arena. This is how he's going to kill Maximus. And Maximus is kind of in disbelief, thinking that there's no way you would actually fight me in a fair fight. You think me afraid? 
I think you've been afraid your whole life. It's pretty good. It's Thanks. pretty good impression. And then um, obviously it's not going to be a fair fight because Kamada uh, stabs him in the back with a with a long knife, causing a serious wound. And then they have him. He has his men patch up the wound and conceal it before the fight. Yeah, it's ironic. This is kind of symbolic of Cain, or even and even Judas of Cain and Abel, where um, Commodus is killing his brother Maximus, kisses him before he stabs him, even calls him brother to his face. He says, "Embrace me, brother." So this is kind of a metaphor of Cain and Abel. Absolutely, hundred percent is. Before the fight even starts, Maximus is in rough shape. When they get out into the arena of the Colosseum. Maximus can barely even stand up straight. Yeah, but we get that beautiful shot of them coming up like those elevators, which yeah. are actually they built, and that's yeah. how gladiators were a lot of times were funneled up into the Colosseum. Yeah, there's a pulley system. Again, wrong with their incredible technology. And you can tell the the shape of the men because Commodus is just waiting for his glory. He's, he's rising up thinking he's a, he's a god, whereas Maximus is weak and he can barely stand up. Yeah. I love this fight, for, especially because there's no music at all. Um, they, they had it uh, it's silent and all you can hear is the action and the breathing and the swords and, and the, the crowds and, and that's it uh, you can hear a pin drop most of the time and it's a great fight and Commodus we are shown early in the film that he actually is pretty adept with the sword and with fighting because there's that scene of him training uh, with five uh, trainers um, and he seems to be Pretty skilled, obviously not the same level as Maximus, but he seems as though he can handle himself for yeah, sure. Yeah, they seem almost on a level playing field with Maximus being stabbed in the back. Yeah, and Maximus is clearly uh, bleeding out and dying because as the fight's going on, he's uh, he, he's hallucinating and, and seeing the wheat and seeing his family in Elysium, so he's barely hang- hanging on right and now. he can barely stand up after he rubs his hand in the dirt. Yeah, and it's a great scene, and eventually, even though Commodus gets a few strikes in, Cl- Maximus... Uh, obviously takes over the fight and it's a great moment where he knocks away Commodus's sword and Commodus goes to his men and asks them for a sword and then Quintus orders them not to give him a sword and then sheath your swords, sheath your swords. and it's a great moment where uh, even the, the soldiers of, of the Roman Empire are rebelling against their emperor and Maximus takes over and it's a, it's an intense moment where Commodus pulls out that small knife and tries to get Maximus with it, but Maximus turns it around on him, grabs his hand, and starts slowly pressing the knife closer and closer to Commodus's neck. And all you can hear is like the breathing, and it's just completely silent until the knife starts driving into his throat. And the look on on Joaquin Phoenix's face is like you can see that like he's just panicking right before his death. And obviously, this was a big mistake. <laughs> a complete disbelief what happened because yeah. he's so arrogant. That he thought he could be Maximus in the arena. Mm-hmm. Before Maximus eventually inevitably dies, he explains that he wants his men to be freed, so he orders Quintus to free his men. Um, Luci- Lucilla comes out, Lucius comes out, and Gracchus comes out, and he explains that Marcus Aurelius wanted the power of Rome to be given back to the people, and it should become a republic. And he's entrusting this with Gracchus. So Gracchus now takes the responsibility of Rome, and he's hoping that he, he follows through with those wishes. And um, we're cross-cutting with visions of him and his family and that wall and the wheat, and it's beautiful, and it's, de- and it's sad, and it's heartbreaking to watch. And Maximus eventually dies, and he gets to enter the afterlife to be with his family. And this is a great shot. It's my favorite shot of the movie where um, as he's dying, Maximus is on the dirt, on the ground, and Ridley Scott does this shot where he seems to be floating above the earth, and it's, it's uh, moving below him. I think it's a it's a beautiful image. 
I always tear up when I see this movie. I've seen it like 25 times, and I still it gets me every. Even thinking about it, I get it. It gets me emotional. I think it's, I think it, having Maximus die is the the perfect ending for this. I don't think it would have felt the same if he survived. I think that this character had to die in the end for us to feel the emotional gravity of the film. Yeah, it's important. Sometimes you got to kill the hero. It makes the story more meaningful. It makes the journey and the road mean that much more. And it's it's sad, but it makes it a much better story and much better ending. Absolutely. And of course, you hope that Rome becomes a republic. But actually, after this, <laughs> really, it was it was rife with with civil war and destruction, and it entered pretty dark ages after that. If only Rome had Maximus. If only he lived, man. But this is one of my favorite movies, and I think it's one of the greatest period action epics ever done, and it's a, a fantastic film. Want to talk some fun facts? I love fun facts. Joaquin Phoenix actually ad-libbed a pretty good amount of his lines, and he ad-libbed the iconic Am I Not Merciful line to Lucilla in it, and she wasn't even expecting it. Am I not merciful? Russell Crowe had a lot of injuries while filming this he lost feeling in his right forefinger for two years after a sword fight, aggravated an Achilles tendon injury, broke a foot bone, cracked a hip bone, popped bicep tendons out of their sockets at different points of the production. Mel Gibson was offered the role of Maximus but turned it down because at the time he was 43 and he felt that he was too old to play Maximus and he's probably right. Hmm. Max, uh, Joaquin Phoenix decided to cut his hair and also put on weight after filming began. And like we said, they shot this chronologically. So if you watch the film, the first scene he's in, he has long curly hair and he's pretty thin. But then by the last scene, his hair is a lot shorter and he's actually put on a lot of weight. And this shows the communist's belief in how much power he has grown and increased as emperor. Oliver Reed, who plays Proximo, eventually died during production. So there's a scene where they had to actually create his face and head uh, CGI and it was a very early version of CGI and it actually isn't horrible to watch on camera. It looks good. Yeah, they, they did a pretty good job with it. It's that scene when the, the Roman guards are attacking Proximo's quarters and Proximo sets Maximus free and he looks through the bars of his cell and that face is actually CGI'd onto a different actor. Nick Cave, uh, from Nick Cave and the, the Bad Seeds, he's also a screenwriter. He's uh, written a few Australian films but he was tapped to write a sequel to this film, and in order to figure out how to bring Maximus back to life, he uh, wrote that the the Roman gods uh, resurrected Maximus and transported him to World War II, then Vietnam, and then he became a modern day modern day general at the Pentagon for America, and thankfully so, the studio rejected it. Would have been weird, man. Would have been pretty time traveling Maximus. Yeah. All right, that concludes episode 37 of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Gladiator. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave those five-star reviews. Follow us on Patreon and help support us monthly. And stay tuned for our movie poster giveaways. Keep tuning in, guys.